It's, it's great to uh, get away, and it's great to uh, be part of things like that retreat, but we do miss these type of things. It was great to get away this past March. A group of us, as you've heard about, uh, headed to Israel and had the trip experience of a lifetime. And especially when you go into certain areas like Israel, um, because of the rich history, long history. In fact, the history goes back further than just the New Testament. Of course, it goes back to really the birth and the, the development of the, the Jewish nation, the Israelite nation, and it, and it then includes the times of Christ. But it's, it's so interesting because it also includes history that some of us have lived, especially if you're my age, too, and you remember back to some of the events, um, especially back in 1967. 1967, there was what was known as the Six-Day War. When Israel and Syria got into a battle and, and Syria had been attacking and there had been, there'd been attacks going back and forth, and Israel ended up claiming a piece of territory that it still claims today, and it's called the Golan Heights. And it was the second day of our trip. The second day of our trip, we, we started the morning with baptisms in the Jordan River, and that was really cool. And then we hopped on the bus, and we headed into the Golan Heights. Golan Heights, the southern end of it is down where we were. It, it's on the east bank side of the Sea of Galilee. And then it extends all the way up north to Lebanon and Syria. And we went over, and we went the whole way. But we started here in this area called the Golan Heights, right down in the southern end of it, which was the area that Jesus would have been in very often. In fact, the story today that we're going to read and we're going to go through is a story that takes place in where we were there in a, in a place now called, called the Golan Heights. And the story comes from Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, if you have your Bibles with you, there are also Bibles there in the pew in front of you. We'll have the Scripture here. Uh, this morning, we're just going to kind of walk through the Scripture and look at the story. It's not a teaching of Jesus. It's not a parable of Jesus. It's, it's, uh, it's a story, and it's a healing. It's, it's a narrative of Jesus in his ministry. And so we're going to look at it. Math, Mark chapter 5, verse 1 Verse 1 goes like this. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, to give you a visual picture of what this looks like, here, here's a picture I took while we were there. This is actually a, a sunrise over the Sea of Galilee. And you see from our hotel room on the balcony uh, in the early in the morning looking up. And the area across the Sea of Galilee is this region of the Gerasenes. It, you can see uh, right across there, it doesn't look that big. Now, the zoom makes it a little smaller than it really is, but the, the, the Sea of Galilee is not a big body of water. And so you look across there, and you can see that, um, that picture. It's the sunrise over the hotel, and, and that scripture says that they were, went across the lake. So let's say they went around the lake. They said it went across the lake. So they, they obviously were taking a boat. And one of the things that we also saw while we were on our trip was a first century uh, boat. And we got a picture of the boat that has been found. And in 1986, two fishermen um, somehow found buried in mud uh, something that they thought was odd and wondered what it was. Ended up, it's, it's this boat. This boat was somehow 
uh, encased in this mud that, that was able, they've been able to date this back to the first century. And so this boat, if you go out on the internet and type in Jesus' boat, this is the boat that will come up. We have no evidence that Jesus wrote in it, but it's from the, we believe it's from the, they believe it's from the time of Jesus. And it has been carefully um, preserved. And that, that gives you an idea of maybe how long it is. It's about 27, 28 feet long, about nine or eight, nine feet wide. And, uh, but the sides aren't real high. I, you know, it's not a huge lake and, and you maybe don't need the kind of boat you would need on Lake Erie typically. But this boat is, the next picture gives you a little more close-up of, of the boat that has been preserved. And it's interesting to think that this is the boat, or a very similar boat, that, very, that they could have been in. Because this was a typical, from what we believe, typical fishing boat, or even a taxi boat, which would have taken maybe ferried people back and forth about that size, a nice 27, 28-foot craft and eight or nine foot wide could handle several people, a lot of fish, and a few fishermen. So these are maybe the boats that you would have seen. Here's a, one more visual for you uh, as, as they would have taken off. Uh, we actually left our boat ride about the same place that they would have left that day. They were in Capernaum. That was Jesus' hometown during his ministry. It was Peter's hometown. And, and we left from right around there. And, and so this is the view you would have had on the lake going out to the region of the Gerasenes. And I can see the disciples in that little boat with uh, no motor, no engine. Uh, they were either rowing or they were sailing. And they were going along and seeing their, where they were headed to that region of the Gerasenes. Now, that's calm. And it's very nice. It's interesting, though, it's not always that way. In fact, the verses just before chapter 5, verse 1, tell us about the journey to this place. It says they started out and a crazy wind came. And the, the waves got crazy and they got hard and, and the boat was being tossed back and forth and the disciples were afraid for their own lives. And Jesus basically stood up and said, be, be still. The waves calmed and the sea, the storm and the winds calmed and then they proceeded on their journey. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Verse 2 says this. They finally arrive, and it says this. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Now that impure spirit uh, really means unclean or evil or actually Luke, when he writes this account, he just doesn't beat around the bush. He says the man's demon-possessed. In fact, if you read on through, when we read on through this passage, you're going to see that, that Mark comes to the same conclusion uh, through the discussions between Jesus and this man that, that this man has a demon in his life. He's got an evil spirit. It's an unclean spirit. It's an evil spirit. It's demon possession or, or a demon, a spirit of a demon. It's not something in the northern, uh, North America anyhow that we really give much thought to. In fact, we've kind of replaced that thought with, with mental illness. And I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of times that it's hard to tell the difference, and in many, many times it's mental illness. But, but there are certain times where it's, it's hard to come to a conclusion of anything, that there is, there's a spirit of Satan that comes upon somebody. And so that is what happens here, an evil spirit. And so in verse 3, we learn a little more about the man. It says this. 
The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had, been off, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. In Luke's passage, he gives us even a little more details about the man. He says, not only does it, could no one bind him, but they tried to. In fact, Luke tells us he was under guard. But, but the guards couldn't contain him. He would break the chains, he would break them, and, and he would be freed. Luke also tells us that for a long time he hadn't worn any clothes. Mark leaves out the fact that he was naked. <laughs> but Luke tells us he hadn't worn clothes for a long time. The other thing Luke tells us is that he had not lived in a house for a long time. So he had, this is not just something that was new in his life. He had been there for a long time. He had been among the tombs. He had been wandering. And, and so you get this picture in your mind. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't have a picture I can show you of that type of thing. But there's this man, if you got this picture in your mind, he's living in the tombs. He's naked. He can't be subdued. He's incredibly strong. He's yelling and screaming all day as he's running through the tombs. And the scripture says he's cutting himself with the stones. So you get this picture of this man that I think we would all agree, probably if we were looking at him, we would say he's out of his mind, right? This guy is out of his mind. Well, what happens when a man who is crazy, demon-possessed, evil spirit, unclean spirit, Naked, running around. What happens when that kind of man meets the Son of God? Well, we're witnesses to it today. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Let's stop there for a second. Obviously, reading through here, Jesus had addressed him first. And had commanded, I think the words that Luke uses, commanded him, the spirit, to come out. And the spirit responds at the top of his voice and says, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Even, even the spirit, even the demons, even this unclean spirit recognizes who Jesus is. In fact, James Brother Jesus writes many years later in James 2, 19, he says this, You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that. And I've read that verse over and over and over again and thought that might, you, you believe in the demons believe. But James adds a word after that that I didn't read. He says this in James 2, 19, Even the demons believe that and shudder. <laughs> and shudder. So you can see the fear in the demon's voice here. You can see the, the fear knowing that Jesus was in control. And he says, don't torture me. We know this is a demon. Jesus would not torture the man. Jesus loved this man just the way he loves you and me. 
But this demon knew Jesus Christ. He knew who he was. In fact, he even says, son of the most high God. But Jesus had him shaking in his boots. <laughs> he was nervous. He was scared. He says, don't torture me. It's interesting. A tormentor is asking not to be tormented. The tormentor is begging not to have done to him what he's doing. Verse, the, the scripture goes on and says this, Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. He said, We're not just one. There's a bunch of us in here. There's many of us. There's a legion of us in here. And then he says, don't send us. They say, don't send us out. Luke's version says, don't send us into the abyss. Don't send us to the punishment yet that we know is awaiting us. They know their future. So here's what happened. Next verse, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went to the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. Now, it bothers some people that this is Israel, and there are pigs. <laughs> you know, pigs are unclean, and they didn't eat pigs. I can verify that there are no pigs, or at least pigs that I saw in Israel, because I can verify when we were there, I didn't have any bacon. <laughs> Every morning, we'd have these eggs. We'll call them eggs. They, 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 were, they were okay. And I just, I just, I gotta have bacon. And, and we had these... Um, UFOs, I called them, that we ate. They were unidentified fried objects. <laughs> they weren't all fried, but there but there was these things like, what, you know, we go around asking, what's this? Do you, do you know what this is? Do you know what we're eating, you know? And, and I'd try to eat it with my eggs, but it just wasn't like bacon. <laughs> but this tells us a lot. It tells us, for one thing, things that we really already know. This area on the other side, this area of the Gerasenes was likely a mixed group of, of, of Jews and Gentiles. And so there were likely many Gentiles in the area, or Gentiles in the area, and they would have been tending and tending their um, pigs. And so it, it wasn't impossible. And, and it makes sense here that, that the spirits of the, um, these evil spirits would go into an unclean animal. So all of it kind of makes sense. But you get an idea when you think of legion and many. 2,000 pigs, 2,000, ran down, it says, down the steep hill. And they couldn't stop themselves, so they ended up running into the Mediterranean and drowning. That area that they believe this happened was Kersey, and this picture here shows a picture we took. And the reason they believe this happened is in this area of the Gerasenes, the region, this is the one place where the steep cliffs run down into the 
Sea of Galilee. In fact, as the Sea of Galilee was undoubtedly larger then than it is now. In fact, it was larger 30 years ago than it is now. It's shrinking as, as man takes a toll on the, the water and, and weather. It, it, it probably was even closer up to the edge. And, and the steam that the herd would have had going downhill, you just can't, you, when you're going fast, even with little pig legs, you can't stop real quick. And so they would, have, they would have been coming down those, those cliffs. And you can see there, this, this is a Byzantine um, monastery, remains from the 5th century that were there. On up at the, um, the next level, it was a chapel that was there uh, for many, many years. And the rest of us who were out of shape stayed down here. Mike Given in our group, he, Givens, he rode up and ran up and took pictures from up there. But, uh, but it's, it's really a sight when you look at those cliffs and you think about the pigs just, just headed down, 2,000 of them, down there into the water there at Kersey. So that's the story. That's the story. The demon leaves. The demons leave. The man is delivered. The pigs are lost. And really the action ends there. And so we could say, okay, well, what are we trying to learn from this? Well, there's a lot of things we could learn from this potentially. It's, it's not a teaching of Jesus, so we can kind of maybe pick some things. But I'm really this morning interested in what comes next. And it's the reactions of people to what just happened. This was an amazing event, incredible. But how did the people react? Verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told him about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I, I'm interested when I see re, the reactions. And what I see here as I look at this really is um, the spreading of the story kind of by the social media of the day. You know, there wasn't Twitter, there wasn't Facebook. It says they ran out. The people who were eyewitnesses, they ran out, and word of mouth told the story, and everybody came out. Now, that makes a lot of sense to me. I grew up in a small town, a town of about 300 people, and that was it. And when I was a young kid, if we would hear a siren, and that siren would be far off, and you know how the sirens get closer and closer? By the time it would get to Damascus, everybody who was out, or some people who even been in their houses, would come out and we'd stand at the road. And we'd watch the siren, and we'd watch the, watch the fire truck or the ambulance or whatever it is go by. That was big news in the city of Damascus. It's how we met our neighbors. <laughs> Not real interesting talk. It was things like, um, wonder where that's going. <laughs> Hope it's nobody we know. <laughs> you know, just things like that. And then you'd go back in, and it was just, it was the way things communicated. But people came out. It was the way it was. And so we see here that the people came out, and they reacted. And it says their reactions were two reactions. One, they were afraid. 
and they rejected him. They, they, they actually pled with him to go away. How could that be? Every now and then I see these movies or TV shows where a, where a doctor, you know, a really good doctor gets tired of the city and he decides he's going to move to the country. And when he moves to the country or, or she moves to the country, they're like heroes. You come to our little town? <laughs> you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna serve us here when you could be making all kind of money uh, somewhere else? And here are these people, they had Jesus right there. It says they were afraid. Afraid of what? Some people say maybe afraid that he was going to take away their living. I don't know. 2,000 pigs at $100 a pig, that's $200,000 just drowned. <laughs> maybe that was it. Maybe that was it. But maybe more than that, maybe more than that, it was being confronted with the power of God. Confronted with the reality of Jesus Christ and that he is somebody with this kind of authority and this kind of power. And when people come to that point in their lives where they are confronted with Jesus Christ and who he is and the power and authority that he has, sometimes that can be a very frightful thing for people. And this concept that God is powerful actually appears to be why the story is here and why God and, and Mark have placed around it other stories. The story I mentioned just before. God has power over nature. Do you know when that storm arose in Mark chapter 4? And they were sleeping and Jesus stopped the wind and he stopped the, the waves? You know what it says the disciples were? Afraid. In fact, it says they were terrified. And it says they asked themselves, who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is it? It says they were terrified. Now, I would like to think that if that was me in that boat that night, and the winds were going like crazy, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the waves were nuts. And, and Jesus stood up and said, be quiet, and everything went still. I would like to think I would have said, whoo, five, five, Jesus, boom, yeah. How cool, I'm glad he's on my team, you know. I, I'm glad, whoo, I am so, all right, yeah, yeah, give, give him the head pit parade, you know, Jesus, and all that kind of stuff. Instead, it says they were afraid. But I think our normal reactions should be, I'm glad he's on my team. Last night when I should have been asleep, preparing and, and waiting for this, I'm watching LeBron dribble for eight seconds down the court, floating on the left side, out of, out of, off balance, twisting, one-handed, beautiful touch shot went in. Can you imagine if J.R. Smith and Kevin Love and the other players, the Cavaliers, went, whoa, what kind of man's that? <laughs> I'm afraid. Let's get out of here. Send him away. Now, that might have been Toronto's reaction. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but that wasn't the Cavaliers' reaction. I, I immediately saw Kevin Love come and embrace him, and they jumping up and down, and the other players joining, they're high-fiving, because something great had been done. It was none of this, I'm afraid. It's none of this, what kind of man is he? 
But when confronted with the power of gospel, confronted with the power of Jesus Christ, the power over nature, and now the power of Jesus over demons and the demonic and Satan himself. Right after this, Jesus walks out and he comes along and he's on his way to a home of Jairus and some lady who had been bleeding for 12 years just touches the hem of his garment. Jesus didn't have to lift a finger. He didn't have to say a word to prove he has power over disease. He kept on walking. And he walks along, and, and there he runs into Jairus and, and into his home and goes up, and they say, it's too late, she's dead. And he walks into her room and proves to everyone that he has power over death by raising that little girl. Jesus Christ has all the power in the world, and when confronted with that, that can be fearful. That, that can make us take pause and say, whoa, what kind of man is this? And that was their reaction. But their reaction was, get away from here. Get away from here. But there's one other person who had a reaction, and it's in the next verse. It says this. As Jesus was getting into the boat, they was getting ready to leave, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, go to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I think it's significant to note what Jesus did not say. He did not say even to the Gentiles, clean up your act and become a Jew. He didn't say, go tell everybody they need to follow the Ten Commandments. He didn't say, I think what you need to do is head to the temple and make some sacrifices. What did he say? He says, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This apparently Gentile man becomes the first commissioned missionary by Jesus Christ to the non-Jews. Jesus says, go and tell. Tell them your story. Tell them your story. The verse 20 says this, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This message this morning is really about this man and his reaction. This man who in the end was delivered, but in the end also obeyed. And he went and did just what Jesus told him to do. And it says they were amazed. All he did was say, here is what Jesus has done for me. It says he went to the Decapolis. Well, that was his people. In fact, in that area, that was the league of 10 cities. They were Greek cities, but they were on the eastern edge of the, of the Roman Empire, on that eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and spread quite over a large area. But those were his people. And, and he, did, he went not, not with a lot of doctrine, not with a lot of theology, but he says, let me start here. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. This man formerly 
demon-possessed, naked, running around screaming, unable to be held in control of, had a story, and it's one man's story. And it begins like this, I was, I was. And I, he would say this, I was a wild man, running naked through the tombs, unable to be restrained, yelling out and cutting myself. I was out of control. But then I met Jesus. I met Jesus. I had an appointment. I didn't know about it, but I believe Jesus, in the boat on his way over, had this man on his heart. I believe Jesus was, was thinking, we're going to be able to deliver somebody from the clutches of Satan today. I met Jesus. And then he says, now I am. I am sitting before you, dressed and in my right mind. I'm able to come home. I'm able to eat with my family. I'm able to go out with my friends. I'm able to live life. I was, I met Jesus, I am. The Bible, especially the New Testament, is full of these stories. Andrew told Peter, hey, come see this guy I've met. I think he's the Messiah. Philip did the same thing for Nathaniel. The blind man that Jesus healed. Everybody's asking, what's going on here? What happened? What's, what's all the theology here? And he said, hey, I don't know. All I know is this. Once I was blind, I met Jesus, and now I see. Once I was blind, I met Jesus, and now I see. The apostle Paul, all through his ministry, told a story. And it was a story about how God had changed him. He told it to everyone he met. In fact, he even wrote about it. In 1 Timothy, when he's writing to Timothy, he tells him the story. And he summarizes it in these four verses. He says this, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has given me strength to do his work. He has considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to be or used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Jesus Christ could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. What Paul was saying is, I was. I was a blasphemer. I was insolent. I was a persecutor of God's people. I was ignorant. I wasn't a believer. I was a sinner. And then Paul met Jesus. And he says, I am. I am strengthened. I am a servant of Christ. I am full of faith and love. I am saved to eternal life. And he finally says this, believe it or not, I'm an example to others through the power of Jesus. For Paul, there was a time and a place, and there is a time and place for doctrine and theology. But Paul was desirous to share with his people, to share with those he come, came into contact with 
his story of what Jesus had done for him. Let me ask you something, one question to close. What's your story? What's your story? And maybe follow that up with, and who have you shared it with? What's your story? I was. I was. But then I met Jesus. Now I am. People are dying, literally, to hear your story. Friends, neighbors, co-workers. They need to hear our stories. They need to know how Christ can change a life. They can argue facts. They can argue scripture. But you can't argue my story. God did something for me that only he could do. God did something for you that only he could do. If you've met Jesus Christ, if you've met him, you have a story. Now, it may not be as dramatic as this fellow. <laughs> it's probably not as dramatic as Paul. It may be not as dramatic as some of the stories that maybe are, are shared in like a celebrate recovery and the story we heard today. But you have a story. My story is not real thrilling to tell. I, I grew up in the church. I gave my life to Christ as a young child. I followed him. I was chaplain. I was of, of, of National Honor Society and, and served as president of my youth group and went to Christian college. And I say sometimes, wow, that's not real exciting. But you know, if I really told you what I was <laughs> and what I am now, when I really tell you how God, Christ, when I met him and then really met him again when I was a little older and could understand how he took a selfish, arrogant, loud mouth, didn't really care what people thought, <laughs> just said it, you know, that kind of guy, that type of guy. Sent a good woman into my life to help change me. That's the story, and that's not all the story. But what's your story? Can you tell it in 60 seconds? Can you tell it in 90 seconds? Can you tell your story in three minutes? Sometimes that's all we have. I know I'm the one sometimes who uh, likes, likes it to come natural. Well, I'll work it in when it gets in there and then maybe a situation happens and you never get it in. Sometimes we need to be bold with our stories. Somebody's walking through a tough time. Don't wait for the natural. Just say, hey, I tell you why. I see you're going through a tough time. Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you my story. Then let them follow up and ask questions. We've all got stories. Jesus told this man, go tell your story. Tell him how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And we can all do that. We can all go out and tell what God has done for us. If we've met him, if we've met him, if you haven't, I encourage you, Listen to our stories and come meet the Lord and Savior that we've met. He'll transform your lives. He'll give you a story to tell others. The final words there said, all the people were amazed. All the people were amazed at the story. God can do amazing things through your story. Share it. Share it often. 
Share it with those around you. Share it with your family. It's nothing judgmental in a story. It's just your story. Let's stand together. Lord, this morning we go with a challenge before us. Lord, to think about all that you've done for us, how you showed mercy on us. And Lord, we've got a challenge to go and share that with somebody. Somebody this week, Lord, placed in our path. Lord, if it's, if it's not just there, give us boldness to share that story. But Lord, help us to do it in the same manner as Christ with the love in our hearts, the, the desire for the best for that person that we're sharing with, Lord, the, the desire that, that this person, Lord, come to know you as Savior. Lord, not out of pride, not out of arrogance, not out of anything else. But Lord, help us to be servants of you. Lord, help us to be like this man because, Lord, we have been saved from so much. Lord, even if we didn't experience it, we have been saved from experiencing it. So, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that you have guided and directed our lives where we are here today. Lord, help us to reach that lifeline out to others, people who need to hear it. Lord, help us to be your witnesses where you've placed us today, this week. And Lord, if we have not yet met you, Lord, I pray that in our seats right here today, that commitment would be made. So I want to follow you. I want Jesus to change my life. I want him to do for me what he's done for others. He will do that. You will do that. Thank you, Lord. Go with us today. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your mercy and grace that you extend to all of us in need of you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go out, serve him. Share your story this week. Try it. You're dismissed.